if Jesus was not alive, he could impact no one in this room. But if Jesus is alive, then he can impact everyone in this room. And that's the argument that the Apostle Paul is making in the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, where he deals with the reality and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He points us to the life-changing potential of the risen Christ. So keeping that in mind, would you turn with me to that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want us to focus together on the first 11 verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 11, or verse 1 through 11. As you find your place there, would you please stand with me on this Easter Sunday morning in honor of the reading of God's Word if you are physically able. This is our third Easter Sunday service, but if you're wondering, I'm doing fine. I just had some Starburst jelly beans between services, and I'm feeling great, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. How about that music this morning? Wow. Praise the Lord uh, for the name of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, the Bible says, Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if... You hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, as the Aramaic for Peter, then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, other preachers of the gospel, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray together this morning. Father, what a privilege to gather on this Easter Sunday morning to remember in song and through the study of your word that Jesus Christ is alive and that matters. So Lord, I pray that as we study your word, you would draw near by your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts so we would see the truths of scripture and have the inclination to respond to those truths. Have your way in our midst. May we leave today different than when we arrived. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth 
in large part to deal with problems in the church. So much of the letters deal with uh, these issues in that church. But as he nears the end of this letter, he wants to remind them in the 15th chapter of the cornerstone of their faith, which is the gospel. He, he mentions the gospel there in uh, verse 1. The word gospel simply means good news. And he says in verse 3 that this gospel, this good news, is a message of primary importance. In other words, there's no message more important for us to focus on. There's no message more important for our consideration than the message of the gospel. You say, well, if it's that important, what is the gospel? Starting in verse 3, Paul defines it. He writes, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Here's the good news. Even though we have all rebelled against a holy God and deserve his wrath and eternal judgment, God loves us and he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to this earth. And Jesus came to this earth and lived a perfect matchless life. And Jesus, driven by his love for you and obedience to the Father, laid down his life when he went to the cross. And on the cross, the Bible teaches that Jesus became sin for us. That means he took all of your evil, all of your wickedness, all of my evil, all of my wickedness upon himself. And on the cross, Jesus died in our place. He died, the Bible says, for our sins. That means that he was our propitiation. That means that he satisfied the wrath of God that we deserve. It means that he took our punishment for us so that we don't have to be punished for our sin, so that we can be forgiven of our sin. So he died on the cross, and he was buried, and then he rose from the grave on Sunday morning, which means he defeated death itself, which means he's alive today, and he's mighty to save anyone that turns to him as Lord and Savior. That's good news, right? That's the gospel. It's a a message of first importance. And Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand the, the implications of this message, the implications of the resurrection. So I want to give you this morning from the text four realities concerning the resurrected Christ. Because again, if Jesus is alive, he can impact everyone's life in this room. Here's the first reality. The resurrected Christ can strengthen wavering faith. The resurrected Christ can strengthen wavering faith. Notice what he says there in verse 5. When he rose from the dead, it says, he appeared to Cephas or to Peter, then to the twelve. Now, because of the Gospels, we have the backstory of this appearance to Peter. We know from reading the Gospels that Jesus predicted that Peter, kind of the leader of the disciples, would deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And when Jesus told Peter this, Peter thought Jesus was wrong. No way will I deny you. But Jesus was betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was arrested. The disciples scattered. Peter kind of stayed close for a while. But he understood that his life was in jeopardy for being identified with Jesus. And so when someone asked him, aren't you with Jesus? He said, no, I'm not. And then he denied Jesus again and then again in the cock crow, just like Jesus said it would 
And in the gospel according to Luke, the Bible says that Jesus was in the house of Caiaphas being tried by the religious leaders. Peter was in the courtyard right outside of the house. And the Bible says when Peter denied Jesus the third time, that his eyes met Jesus. And Peter fled. And Peter found a dark corner there in Jerusalem. And the Bible says he wept bitterly. So you might say that Peter tragically denied Jesus. Now, before we throw Peter under the bus, and before we kick Peter while he's down, can we all just admit this morning that there have all been times in our lives when we've let Jesus down? There's, there have all been times in our Christian journey where we've stumbled and fallen. Times where we have denied Jesus, not wanted to be associated with him or identified with him. There have been times when we've not done what Jesus told us to do and we've done what Jesus told us not to do. We've all let Jesus down just like Peter. Which makes it such good news that after his resurrection, after Peter had tragically denied him, Jesus mercifully restored him. You see, Jesus appeared to Peter and lifted him up. The story is found over in John chapter 21. Peter and his colleagues go back to being commercial fishermen. It's almost as if Peter's saying, enough of this following Jesus stuff. It's too tough. I failed. I'm going back to fish. That's what I know. And so they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee and they're having no results. And Jesus, risen from the dead, appears on the shoreline. He says, hey, put your net in over there. And they do it and catch 153 fish. Peter recognizes that's Jesus on the shoreline. So the Bible says he strips off his outer garment and jumps in the water and swims to the shore to be with Jesus. The other disciples arrive. They pull the net full of fish onto the shore. Then they enjoy fellowship with Jesus. He's cooking some fish and they're enjoying that meal. And and then Jesus turns his attention to Peter. And he asked Peter three times, Do you love me? Why three times? Well, Peter denied Jesus three times. Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? The third time, do you love me? And and Peter's broken by that question. Because, you know, his, his denial did not portray love for Jesus. But Jesus does not leave Peter in his brokenness. He reminds Peter, I have a plan and purpose for your life. I'm going to use you in great and mighty ways. And he repeats that original call from three years prior when Jesus began his public ministry, when he looked at Peter fishing and said, follow me. And there on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, after his betrayal, after his denial, Jesus says to Peter again, follow me. In other words, Peter, I'm not done with you yet. I'm going to raise you up, and I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to strengthen you, and I'm going to use you. Peter tragically denied Jesus, but Jesus mercifully restored Peter. Now that's good news because perhaps you're here this morning, and you know Jesus, 
but you're not running your Christian race well. Perhaps it's because of apathy or complacency or wrong priorities or perhaps trial and tribulation or circumstances in your life. But you're not living fully for the Lord. You're not where you need to be spiritually and you know it. So isn't it good news that Jesus is alive and because he's alive, he can restore you. He, listen, Jesus loves to restore. When it says over in Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd, in verse 3 it says, He restores my soul. He loves to pick us up and put us back on our feet and strengthen us so we can get back in the game and serve him and live for him. As a matter of fact, if your heart is still beating this morning, Jesus is not done with you yet. He has a plan and purpose for your life. He wants to restore you. And he can because he's alive. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. There's a sprinter from Great Britain running one of the qualifying races for the 400 meter event. He was doing well in previous qualifying races. He was favored to do well. And on this certain qualifying run, he comes around that last curve and Derek Redmond, this British sprinter, pulls up holding his hamstring. He's in such pain and agony, he falls to the track and the other runners surge ahead and finish. And it's evident in that moment that Derek Redmond's Olympic dreams are over. Some officials come to the track and they begin to try to help him. He pushes them away and he stands up and begins to hobble towards the finish line. But he is in great pain. He can hardly walk and and there's great drama in the stadium. People are wondering, is he even going to make it? And all of a sudden, if you watch the video, there's a disturbance over on the side. And this man breaks through security and runs up to Derek Redmond. You know who the man was? His name was Jim Redmond, Derek's father. And Jim puts his arms around his son, Derek, and half carries, half supports him to the finish line. And, And he gives his son the strength that he needs to finish. I can't watch that video without tearing up. And that is a picture of what Jesus does for us. When we find ourselves broken and hurting and we've stumbled and we've fallen and we're not running our race well, Jesus, who is alive, will come to you. He will lift you up. He will carry you. He will use you. He will get you to the finish line, right? That's good News, our risen Savior loves to strengthen wavering faith. And perhaps God brought you here this morning so you could hear that. You've just been going through the motions. And you needed to hear that Jesus has a plan and purpose for your life and he will put you back in the game. There's a second reality concerning the resurrected Christ. The resurrected Christ can convince skeptics. Look what it says back in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7. 
He appeared to Cephas in the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then, then to all the apostles. Then he appeared to James. Who is James here? Who's he, who's he talking about? Well, he's not talking about James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, because in verse 5 he mentions he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were part of the twelve, so he had appeared to that James already. This James, in verse 7, is James, the brother of Jesus. And I want you to see just some, some quick things about James. First of all, he was related to Jesus. Uh, turn to Matthew 13. Let me show you this. Matthew chapter 13. Verse 53, Matthew 13, verse 53. The Bible says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished by his teaching. And they said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas are not all his sisters with us? In other words, they're saying, hey, we know his family. They're just plain, ordinary folks. And now this guy is teaching like that? Where'd that come from? But notice they mention his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And that same list is given over in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. And because James' name is first, that probably indicates he was the oldest of Jesus' four brothers. Now, to be accurate, James was the half-brother of Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, left heaven and came to earth, and he took on human flesh, conceived by the Spirit, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Then after he was born... Joseph and Mary had biological children, and James was one of these children. So he was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He was related to Jesus. But not only was he related to Jesus, there was a time he did not believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Look with me, with me in John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 3. His brothers, James being one of them, said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers here are being sarcastic. Okay, if you're this Messiah, then go show yourself at the Feast of Booths. Go, go public if you really are the Messiah. And they're speaking sarcastically because they did not believe he was. James was the half-brother of Jesus, but he did not believe in Jesus as Messiah. Which, parenthetically, reminds us that you can know a lot about Jesus and not be saved. Right? I mean, just ask James. And so he did not believe in Jesus. But here's the good news. He was eventually saved. We know that because over in Acts chapter 1 verse 14, the Bible records when the, the early church gathered together waiting for the promise of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They were gathered together 
praying, a group of Christ followers. The Bible says that Mary was there. And guess who else was there? James was there, a follower of Christ, praying, believing in Jesus, ready to serve him. He was eventually saved. Now, we don't know exactly when James was saved, but I believe 1 Corinthians 15, 7 speaks to that moment when it says, after his resurrection, then Jesus appeared to James. I believe when James encountered the risen Lord Jesus, he became a believer, he became a follower, he went from skeptic to believer in Christ. And he was saved. And then, listen, Jesus transformed him and made a difference in his life. It's interesting to watch the trajectory of James' life after his salvation. His life was marked by lordship over in James chapter 1, verse 1, when he's writing a book of the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He introduces himself. He says, James, and he doesn't say, brother of Jesus. Now, I probably would have thrown that credential, credential around a little bit. Hey, I'm related to Jesus. I probably would have said that, right? He doesn't say that. He says, James, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. The most important designation for his life that it was that he was a slave of Jesus, that Jesus was his Lord. His life, his life was marked by lordship and leadership. Acts 12, Acts 21 show us that James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Galatians 1.19 calls him an apostle and we know that he was used by the Lord to write a book of the Bible. That's pretty impressive, right? And then we know his life was marked by loyalty. History records that James was martyred. The Jewish historian Josephus says around the year AD 61, James was martyred and he was faithful even unto death. So here's the question. How do you go from being a skeptical unbeliever to a Christ follower living a life of kingdom purpose? How does that happen? How, how can that radical transition happen? Listen, James met the resurrected Lord Jesus and that changed everything. I read a story this past week, and I read the headline, and I had to click and read the article, because here's the headline. Georgia mother crashes vehicle into pole to prove God is real, police say. I had to read that story. The story took place in Georgia, and it Read, a, a woman was arrested last week after deliberately driving her SUV into a telephone pole with her two children in the car to prove that God would protect them. Police say that Miss Warren told Norcross uh, police she veered into oncoming traffic and hit a concrete pole on purpose. Praise the Lord, no one was hurt, including her five and seven-year-old children who were sitting in the back seat. The children told the police that their mother crashed into the pole on purpose. The daughter said she didn't want us to have a car accident. She just wanted us to know that God is real. Well, Miss Warren was arrested for that foolish act. But can I just tell you something? I've got some, some really good news for you. You ready? You don't have to drive into a pole to know God is real. Isn't that good? You don't have to do that, all right? On your way home, you don't have to say, buckle up, kids. and that, that doesn't have to happen. 
But perhaps you're here this morning and you're a bit skeptical. Easter Sunday and music and preaching and is, is all this real? Maybe you're here and you're an unbeliever. You, don't, you do not believe in Jesus Christ. How can you know that all of this is real? You ready? Hear the good news about Jesus. And by the way, there's ample historical evidence for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, he mentions that. Do you notice what he said? He appeared to over 500, and, and when Paul wrote that in the first century, he said most of them are still alive. In other words, if you want to know, just go ask some folks. And they'll tell you, Jesus Christ really is alive. There's ample historical evidence for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the historicity of Christ. So if you want to know if he's real, if the, all of this is real, hear the good news about Jesus. And then you'll experience the stirring of the Holy Spirit in your life, showing you that you need a Savior. And if you'll turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, you'll meet that risen Savior, and you will experience a transformed life, and you will know that He is real. You, you want to know how I know Jesus is real this morning? Because He's changed my life. There, there's just no question. We sang it earlier. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And so, we see that Jesus saves a skeptic and changes the trajectory of James' life. But there's a third reality here about the resurrected Christ. The resurrected Christ can save the religious. Look back with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 9, Paul writes, For I, or verse 8, he says, Last of all, he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to 500, appeared to James. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know what Paul's saying there? Paul is saying, there was a time in my life when I thought that my religious excellence would save me. I, I thought that if I did all the right things and externally I looked righteous, then surely God would accept me. If I memorized the Bible and went to synagogue and gave alms and fed the hungry, if I, if I did all those things, then surely God would accept me. He said, I was so passionate about keeping the, the rules, the law, that I even persecuted the church because I thought it threatened my Judaism. But we know from Acts chapter 9 that on the road to Damascus, Jesus met the resurrected Lord Jesus. I mean, uh, Paul met the resurrected Lord Jesus. He was transformed. He fought, fell down and said, Who are you, Lord? What would you have me to do, Lord? He begins to follow Christ right there on the road to Damascus. He knew Jesus died for him, he knew Jesus rose from the dead. And you know what happened on that road? On the road to Damascus? On that road, Paul laid down human effort and received grace. 
Paul said, I was, I was doing all the religious stuff. I thought that I could earn my way to salvation. But when I met Jesus, I understood that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus was the only way I could be saved. So I laid down my effort trying to save myself, and I received grace, the gift of salvation that only comes from Christ. That's what happened in Paul's life. We see the resurrected Christ save the religious. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're religious. And by that I mean you think that your effort will save you. Maybe you're even here, listen to this, maybe you're even here and you don't consider yourself religious, but you're religious because you're living by a code called moralism. And moralism basically says... Well, you know, I'm not a real spiritual person, and I don't take all that stuff real seriously, but if, if my good outweighs my bad, surely I'll go to heaven. I'm a good old guy. I'm a good old gal. Surely God will wink at my sin and let me into heaven. That's called moralism, and it's rampant in the Bible Belt, where people are trusting in their goodness to get them to heaven. Instead of receiving the only way to heaven, the free gift of salvation found in Jesus Christ, Jesus said it like this, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me, let me illustrate how futile human effort is. Let's just say that you found yourself at the bottom of a deep pit. And you wanted out of the pit. The problem is the walls were, are sheer stone. And you try to climb up, and you get a little ways up, but you slide back down. There's just no way for you to climb out of that pit. And then someone sees your predicament. They throw a rope and say, take hold, I'll pull you out. And you say, uh, let me keep trying myself. And you keep trying to climb that wall, and your, your hands become bruised and bloodied, and, and you can't make it out of the pit. And there's a way out. It's a gift. It's grace. All you have to do is take hold of the rope. That's what it looks like when people refuse Jesus and trust in their own effort to make it to heaven. It's futile. It's empty. No matter how many good things you do, your sins must still be forgiven because your sins separate you from God. And there's only one way to have your sins forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul experienced the resurrected Christ saving the religious. But there's a, there's a fourth reality here and, and we'll be through. We've seen from this text in 1 Corinthians that the resurrected Christ can strengthen wavering faith. And we've seen that the resurrected Christ can convince skeptics. And the resurrected Christ can save the religious. But fourth and last, the resurrected Christ can save people from any background. So Paul mentions Peter. And he mentions James. He mentions his own salvation. Then look how he closes this section. Verse 11 he says in verse 10, I worked harder by the grace of God to get the gospel out, to preach the gospel by the grace of God that is within me. So whether it was I preaching the gospel or they, other preachers that had come into Corinth, he said, so we preach and so you believed. So he's saying the gospel impacted you. The resurrected Christ impacted you in Corinth. Now, here's what's interesting 
we know some things about the church in Corinth. We know because we look at the book of Acts in chapter 18 when the church was founded. And we know there are people in that church from secular backgrounds, spiritual backgrounds. There were Jews in that church. There were Gentiles in that church. We know there are people there in that church at various levels on the socioeconomic scale. Some people of prominent, some people who were considered um, weak by society. And we know that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writing says, Not many of you were noble. Some of you were considered nobility, but not many of you were considered weak and foolish. And yet, you know Christ. Here's the point. In the church at Corinth, there were people there from all backgrounds. All backgrounds. Different ethnicities, different languages, different backgrounds, different family histories, and yet they all met the resurrected Christ and were saved. That teaches us that there is hope for everyone. In this room, there are all sorts of backgrounds represented, aren't there? And I want you to know, no matter what your background is, Jesus died for your sins, Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus loves you, and He can change your life. That's what the gospel's all about. Maybe some of you are here and you say, Wade, that all sounds good, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know my history, you don't know where I've been. You don't know my past, and I hear what you're saying, but I don't really believe that God loves me. I don't really believe that the gospel is for me. That's for you folks that look like you have it all together. Hey, come in real close. No one in this room has it all together. You are surrounded by sinners that need a Savior, And you are hearing a preacher preach this morning who is a sinner in need of a Savior. No one has it together. We're all broken in need of forgiveness and transformation, right? I heard a quote recently from a man named Russell Moore. Very thought-provoking. Listen to what he said. He said, the next Billy Graham could be drunk right now. Can God intersect the life of a man who's down and out and save him and forgive him and put him back on his feet and then use him to preach the gospel to the world? You better believe it. If grace is a reality and Jesus really is alive, the next Billy Graham could be down and out, but he could be saved by the grace of God and used by the Lord. Amen? Why? Because of the resurrection, there is hope for people from any background. And that's good news. We sang a song in my church growing up. We sang it often for the response song, and it, it really sums up this last point that the resurrected Christ can save people from any background. It simply said, There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross. For you. Though many have come, 
There's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. Because Jesus is alive, he can save anyone. And he will save anyone if they will simply turn to him. So here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. Wherever you are in your journey, wherever you are, the resurrected Christ can change your life. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, he could impact no one in this room. But because Jesus is alive, he can impact everyone in this room.